At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food Revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Nate Downey of Permadesign to talk about his experience with permaculture and water harvesting. Author of the recent award-winning book, Harvest the Rain, published in 2010, Nate brings an extensive background to his current work and practice as a designer, landscape changer, and forward-looking writer. For over a decade, Nate has spoken, taught, and penned numerous columns, guides, and publications extending permaculture practices in vitally important ways. At home, in our backyards, in the workplace, regionally, nationally, and internationally, Nate's work addresses what he calls changescapes, permapatterns, and permadesign, providing practical and visionary ways to be productive and add value to our lives, our homes, our communities, and the environment. Nate's permadesign firm believes decisions that green our daily lives should add beauty, comfort, and value to our most important investments. While impacting our world at home, we can all positively affect the environment upon which we depend. Each of us can make a difference by the way we see and the way we act. Welcome to the show today, Nate. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? 
Sure. I ended up at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, falling in love with the place. Oh, yeah. Santa Fe and the green chili and the blue sky. And I wanted to figure out a way to stay there if I could. Uh So I gave myself a year. And about two-thirds of the way through that year, the job I had laid me off. And it was this really cool nonprofit organization that wanted to create sustainable communities in northern New Mexico that would then show the world how it could be done. Yeah. But their funding ran out, and so did my job. The next week, as I was thinking about what to do, I saw an ad in the paper for a permaculture design class with Bill Mollison. Oh, my gosh. And the nonprofit I had worked with, we always talked about, oh, yes, we're going to bring in permaculture to this sustainable community that we're going to develop. But nobody had ever taken a design course, and people had various understandings as to what really permaculture was. Uh So I took it as a sign, and I jumped on the bandwagon. And a month later, I took that class with Bill Mollison for the first week, which was outstanding. Oh, I'm sure. And the second week was really great as well. There were some local teachers that came on board and spoke to their specific interests and expertise. And I ended up getting a job with one of the teachers. Whoa. And by the end of that year, he didn't want to be a landscape contractor anymore. <laughs> and he said, look, Nate, I've got a couple jobs here. Want to bid them for me and take this thing on? Wow. And so literally, I, I, was, I started a landscaping business with a car, not a truck, a uh-huh. car. <laughs> <laughs> what year was that? That was 1992. Whoa. Okay, and cool. So, I uh, grew a, a little bit every year, really some years 30% and some years 15% a year uh-huh. and sort you know, hiring employees. And by uh, about the year 2000, we had uh, you know, seven, eight trucks running around town and 20 employees and Lots of uh, permaculture principles being applied to the landscape in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And that went on for a while. We had our first kid, and then we had our second kid. And, and we figured out that about seven employees is, is equal to the work of one kid. <laughs> and so we were suddenly a family of seven, and it was a little bit too exciting. And we decided to change the direction of our company to be design and install when we wanted to do install and and sub out the installations of our landscape designs to our former competition, which of course in permaculture lingo isn't competition at all, our our cooperative colleagues who were ready to work. And so that, that worked out for us really well. But the reason we really did that too is that I happened to be in our busy season in the middle of May on that year, that that was 2005 by this time, and I got a call, and I started giving my, my spiel. You know, the water comes off the roof, and we like to take that water, and we like to collect it and put it to the roots of plants. And the guy cuts me off and says, no, no, I don't want a landscape. I want to publish your book. Oh, no way. And I said, listen, this is my busy season. Uh, is this a crank call? I mean, I think I might have said that. <laughs> I don't oh, have a God. book. You got the wrong Nate Downey. 
And he said, but, but, but wait, 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 what about the column that you have in the newspaper? And, and I did. I have this monthly column. I've had that since 99 uh-huh. called Permaculture in Practice. And I said, okay, let, let me call you in a couple weeks and, and we might talk about a book. And in between that couple weeks, this person I knew from the office of the state engineer said he had got a grant and he needed to use up some money to write a water harvesting book. And so hold on, hold by on, the hold end on, of that summer, on. I had a couple of book contracts, which hold also convinced uh, my wife and I, who were running the company, uh-huh. to uh, change direction from all that 20 employees to being more the designers, consultants, yeah. and project managers, uh, rather than chasing after sort of every uh, gravel mulch job just to keep people busy in the winter. So I, I have to say something. That, what you just spoke was magic. <laughs> and what I say was that that is permaculture magic. Can you kind of can you kind of speak to how magic happens like that in permaculture and why that is permaculture magic? Oh dear. Well, the place that I took the permaculture class at was a magical place. So I was never all that surprised by all of the magic that came after that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I almost expected it. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Uh, it was at the end of the road. You go south out of Santa Fe and it's the old Santa Fe trail and you uh-huh. go through this little quote unquote you know, town, really a hermitage. Uh, uh, and, and then you go past and into the mountains and this beautiful ranch was there. And at the time, it, yes, it's it, showed many, lots of erosion, lots of signs of erosion, uh-huh. but the people were committed and they became friends. And that, that place uh, was just a gorgeous place at the sort of the southeastern corner of the Rocky Mountains with a huge rock outcropping called Shaggy Peak and a group of people who were so inspired and so inspiring. I kept in touch with many of them, made friends, uh, long-term relationship friends from that permaculture design course. We later got together and had a reading group of Bill Mollison's Permaculture, A Designer's Manual, and Uh we would go chapter by chapter, and it really took us 10 months to go through the book and read it as a reading group, and some of those same people ended up getting very involved in the permaculture movement. You recently, I think, interviewed Michael Kramer, who was one of those people in that reading group and in that same class, and yeah, there is this magic to permaculture that, uh, of course, Bill Mollison would never want to admit to, uh, but it's true. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's the really the magic of nature and being able to see it and plug into it, don't you think? I think so. There's this – well, the patterning thing might be the the reason for that, right? Yeah. The the spirals and the layering and the tessellation and, and branching, these are nature's – this is nature's language yeah. and nature's vocabulary. And once you kind of clue into that, you are speaking nature's language somehow. And there's a reward there. So that's the nature flow, right? Yeah. So what does that reward look like when we step into nature's flow? Well, it's a way of directing energy in a, an effective manner. Yeah. So you, for example, you branch, you mimic the branching of nature in our gray water systems. Oh, yes. Where it's very important to understand how nature's branching in our root systems and in our lungs and other organs and in the branches of trees, how they dissipate energy. And if you can take that concept and really 
get the power of it, uh -huh. then you're no longer thinking, oh, I got to put my gray water into a tank and let it turn right. into a, a septic swill <laughs> till I'm ready to right. hold my nose and stick the sump pump in it and pump it out. Because that's a way that I think most of the world thinks gray water happens. Yeah. Uh, well, not most of the world. The people who try that way soon figure out that there must be a better, better way. way. Yeah. But uh, it's, yes, uh, it's it's all about gravity and and using nature's forces uh, to your benefit rather than trying to fight them, and that's the same with passive water harvesting and and the pipes that go into the conveyance pipes that go into a cistern. Uh, these are the cistern itself is reminiscent of a very important pattern in nature that we think of as the lagoon or the cocoon. Oh right, and that's a special pattern that uh, you know. Babies are born from, and, and the papoose, and uh, the kangaroo's uh, pocket, pouch, yeah, uh, pouch, and the the cistern, like those special patterns, uh, is a one that can produce a great deal and of effectiveness and productivity and efficiency, but it also takes sort of the most care because. When you hold nature in one place and try to keep it there, it can be tricky. And so cisterns are sort of our best friend, but also can be our, our most challenging enemy when you have that much weight and, and that much force behind that water right. uh, uh, to, to deal with. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So this is... A big part of what you look at is what you call perma patterns and in the realm of perma design uh, so that's what really what we're talking about here is it not yeah and the patterning also has the benefit of being really beautiful too and, and that's very important mm, in my work yes uh, people want aesthetics and so if we can make the aesthetic be a copacetic with the sustainability <laughs> or the permaculture, um, we're very successful. And, and a pattern, say, like the spiral that we get with an herb spiral, people love that. And we're using uh, nature's patterns, permaculture patterns in ways that are aesthetically pleasing and attractive to people. So that's something that's very, very important. We knew when we started Santa Fe permaculture 23, 24 years ago that uh, we weren't going to be successful unless we had beauty to, to show for it. We didn't think right. that the yeah. people in our market, Santa Fe, New Mexico, were going to be that excited about the sort of the crunchy uh, granola stuff, granola side, yeah. which is one of my favorite sides. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I can't really sell that so right. much. So, but at the same time, it, it, the the beauty is is there in 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 all of it, and we just had to. We felt like we had to make sure that our aesthetic quality was as important as our ecological quality. I love you used a couple of words together that you know kind of rang for me. Then that was septic swill. Okay. Love that. And make the aesthetic copacetic. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So you also, in your bio, talked about changescapes. Tell us about those. Well, changescapes is just looking at the world in a new way. Uh -huh. uh, we, 
uh, have this modern American macho mentality of uh, here comes the water off the roof and we are going to just get rid of it because we're scared to death of water and it could create a mold or it could make our foundations sink. Mm -hmm. And so the traditional or conventional method, and then that's changing now, but has been to just get it off site, get that water off site. And so we're changing our perspective on landscaping by seeing water as the critical element that as soon as you do get it, you know, four feet away from a house, you can start sinking it into the soil. And yeah. some jurisdictions prefer that you're 10 feet away from the house because, again, they're still frightened of water. Right. Depending on your jurisdiction, you do want to look into that. But as soon as you start allowing the water that comes off the roof, that comes off your roads, your driveways, your paths, your patios, those impervious surfaces that typically create pollution – with their mass times momentum, which picks up particulate from the ground and takes it to your local river. Mm-hmm. And it's the river and, and kills the uh, fish in there, typically, uh, by changing the temperature of the water with uh-huh. that particulate. Uh, rather than doing that, we'll change scape it and we'll allow that water to uh, slow down and sink into the soil and be used to our benefit. Mm-hmm. As I say, slow it, flow it, grow it. Nice. And I'll bet that's in your book, right? I think it is. <laughs> Tell <laughs> it's us. It's something I developed later, frankly. I, I got to check that. I, I, All right. Cool. Well, that's good. So the, there was a magic piece that happened to get this book done. Somebody called you, which I'd say that never happens. Yeah. So, well, if you want to know the truth on that, they also called me and they, uh, a few years later, never paid me. Uh, yeah, uh, when the book was done and, and never paid me and have filed for chapter 11. So well, it was, it was two forms of magic, you right, know, well, there you go. You, <laughs> evil you, magic as well as, uh, yeah. I, I really still, I'm very gracious and thankful that they did call me, but I think it's, it's time and, uh, really, the book's been out for six years, and these people still haven't gotten it together. <laughs> All right. Uh, that but I can but you're, still, you're still selling the book. Pardon me? You're still selling the book? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Perfect. The book is a print-on-demand, so ah. there's no need for a whole warehouse full of them. Right. I mean, I have a bunch in my garage just in case these guys really do tank completely. I mean, the filing for chapter 11 is that they're still in business and they're just trying to figure it out. And uh, so I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. And at some point, I imagine I'll have a different publisher. Yeah. So tell us about the book. Yeah. Harvest the Rain is uh, focuses on uh, four types of water harvesting. Oh, all right. Good. Yeah. Passive water harvesting, where you slow it and flow it and grow it in, by, at, at the roots of plant material and mm-hmm. in the soil. Right. Uh, there's active water harvesting, where you take water from an impervious surface like a roof and direct it into a tank and pump it out. Uh, there's uh, wastewater recycling, which is gray water, gray water yep. and black water. Gray water being everything but the kitchen sink and the toilet. And then black water is the kitchen sink, the toilet, and anything else you put in there. Yep. And then something I call community water harvesting, which is the uh, educational component, which is the component for people who are renting but want to take care of their watersheds, or yep. the people who are not renting and they want to be part of 
a community effort to sort of take back our watersheds, which is becoming a, a very large part of our cultural psyche of the zeitgeist and the Santa Fe River uh, Watershed Association. Uh, every year it gets hundreds of people to pick up a trash bag at the centralized location and uh -huh. go out with your friends and pick up garbage in, in the Santa Fe River. <laughs> And it's a wonderful experience for everyone to be a garbage collector for a day, but it's really important uh -huh. to keep that trash out of our, our, our river systems. Right. So exactly. community water harvesting is also getting active politically on issues. I actually, another part of the bio story is that I was very, very into politics back in the late 80s and was actually planning on skipping college. And I was working for Gary Hart's presidential campaign. Oh, my gosh. And... Uh, when that came crashing down, I was very sad, I should say, and depressed and, and not interested in politics so much anymore. And when I found permaculture was great, it was like, oh, great, we can do permaculture, save the world, and I don't have to worry about all that Democratic National yeah. Committee BS and, and, and the media, et cetera. And so uh, the problem with that was um, that wasn't true. There are laws. There were laws uh, against gray water in the uh, using yep. gray water in the landscape uh, back then, and we had to organize to create a law to make it really legal. And it was legal, but they just basically considered gray water to be a form of black water, and so right. you had to treat it as if it were uh -huh. uh, sewage. And we knew it wasn't. We'd uh, read Art Ludwig's books and yep. uh, wanted to use gray water as major drought back in 2003. Fortunately, my wife had run for office on the Green Party ticket and lost, which was great because <laughs> then, then we didn't have to worry about people's potholes, but uh, the, the, the powers that be did listen to us. And within a few months, we got a gray water law passed that wow. now been able to use on many jobs. I just got a call this morning uh -huh. uh, for someone who wants to do a laundry to landscape system and looking forward to that. And so organizing politically is is part of it, at least for some of us. And so it's a mixture of sort of getting back to the land and doing all the things that we should do to our land, but also staying involved politically and taking care of our, our watersheds with community water harvesting. Right. Wow. There's Another all... big issue on that too, just so you know, is Please. that we had a landmark case here in New Mexico for our chickens. Uh, there's a, a large subdivision called El Dorado. Uh -huh. And the covenants of that uh, subdivision were unclear. And some people thought that they definitely said you weren't allowed to have chickens. And lots of other people thought the opposite. And just back in April, the courts finally decided that uh, the people who own chickens are right and they're allowed to have chickens in El Dorado and, and that court case I think has ramifications throughout New Mexico and the country. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big believer that if you've got some dirt backyard you should have three hens so yeah big time because they're so too. yeah they're great in the landscape they give you eggs they eat, yeah so on and so on and so on. So why is this whole notion of water harvesting important? Well, you know, most people just think you turn on the tap and, and there's your water. But obviously the uh, droughts that we've had recently, uh, people in uh, Flint, Michigan, oh, yeah. know, realize that there are sometimes 
times where it's nice to have an alternative source. There is a concept in economics called natural monopoly. Mm. And that is what water harvesting often runs into. That is to say, it makes sense to have a monopoly in a community when you're talking about your water system. You have one pump from one well or you have one reservoir and one infrastructure that takes the water from a particular point to uh-huh. the uh, the place where we use to it. go. Yeah. And, and why would you have you know three or four companies competing for that? You'd have matrices of pipes running into each other all under streets, and it, it would not be efficient. Mm-hmm. So, you know, moving water is expensive, and so the redundancy principle that I learned from that first permaculture class, uh-huh. where Something as important as water, uh, certainly, again, for people in California or uh, people suffering uh, lead poisoning, and the list goes on and on right now with, with water problems. And we're talking quite a bit uh, in the national debate about you know, rebuilding our infrastructure. Well, that's, that is an important thing to do, and I'm not saying water harvesting should replace these natural monopolies. But to have more than one source ensures that you will – you know, do much better with respect to your survivability uh, and your sustainability and creating a permanent culture. Uh, water harvesting also, it's important to realize, does you know, prevent that uh, pollution that we talked about earlier. Uh-huh. And so it almost is something that you know, the government might, might want to pay people to do and has paid people to do in, in places like Seattle where they're They've got plenty of moisture, but when it comes down all at once and ends up in the bay, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's unhealthy for the bay. So the expense that goes into it is certainly something that can turn people off, but the effect that comes from it is, is again, I guess that permaculture magic mm-hmm. that uh, the, the water is extremely clean and it is right there on your roof. Uh, if you can get it either to the soil or into a tank, you will have that that extra resource that might really save you one day. Right. Well, and there's there's multiple ways to do water harvesting. Uh, I mean, it's just, it could be as simple as, hey, there's water coming off of my roof, going down the gutter, get it to a part of your yard where you have an orchard, right? Absolutely. And it's simple grading the earth, you know, changing the slope mm-hmm. just a little to make sure that that downspout uh, directs water to that tree mm-hmm. it can happen uh, very inexpensively now so these berms uh, ditches and berms that we in permaculture talk of as on contour swales uh-huh. can be set up in a fish scale pattern so oh. that the one uh, that's highest in elevation fills up first and then pours into the next one below mm-hmm. that in those larger storm events, that next little, if you will, fish scale fills up and, and pours into the next one so that you're really allowing that water to uh, take the slowest possible yeah. route uh, uh, toward the the lowest part of your property. And you can basically have it sort of zigzagging through mm-hmm. uh, to, those, to an orchard uh, rather than allowing it just to shoot right on by. Another method that I use quite a bit, and uh-huh. I, w- I would like to see it being used 
it's quite common now in, in Santa Fe and, and New Mexico. I don't know if it's common in other places, but uh, something I learned from one of my teachers in that first permaculture class, a local guy named Dirk Lokes. Uh-huh. I think he got it from a guy named Tom Watson, and they, they often sometimes call them Watson Wicks. Oh, yes. And, we use porous stone, whether it be scoria or pumice, or there's a material made out of recycled glass, which is a little bit more expensive, mm-hmm. called growstone. And any one of these aggregates that is light, that has multiple uh, pores in it, can be put in a trench underground that when the water you know comes off the roof, goes down a downspout and into your perforated pipe with this material surrounding it it's like a sponge underground oh yeah nicer thing about that although it does cost a little more to install than those tessellations or fish scales of swales that we were just talking about Uh these wicks allow the water to go directly to the root systems of the plants that you want to um, provide water to and you don't lose any water to evaporation that way. You lose it to evapotranspiration, but that's all that's all part of plant life, and that's good. So it, it, you put that water in a place where you won't lose any of it to evaporation and in a very important and efficient place down in its root zone. Yeah. Beautiful. Wow. Anything more on water harvesting before we shift? Let's see. Water harvesting, the, the simplest way to harvest the rain is to – mulch so it's probably something that people most often forget and could easily do whether it's with straw is my favorite mulch especially in the veggie garden uh bark the the ancient ones the Diné people of this area would uh, use gravel as a mulch Uh and hold down their seeds and one of the nice things about a gravel mulch is that it heats up during the day Uh and in the desert and other places, of course, too. And at night, with the temperature change, convection really occurs, and moisture is found under those stones. And you're really creating moisture out of out of out of rocks. And that's they knew that. And <laughs> they also would do these cairns uh, where they would build up piles of rocks and plant around them, and they would even soak up more heat. Yeah. Uh, these these like conical rock structures uh, would um, sometimes also prevent plants from being eaten by uh, you know deer and other wildlife. They would they would put the plant inside of the the carns, but uh, oh, then sometimes you plant on the outside, and right. that that heats up and releases moisture and can get you through to the next rain Beautiful. or the next time someone shows up with a uh, you know a little piece of pottery on their head full of water. Yeah, exactly. One of the things we use here in the desert is wood chips, and they're free because people are chipping wood all the time. Yeah, Yeah. and I used to be against wood chips, but I'm glad you brought them up because I was told that the wood chip would uh, sort of soak up the moisture and then release it to the air uh, more quickly Mm. than other materials. But I've come to realize that there might be some of that, but there's still the same types of of mulch, mulch qualities. But you also get from wood chips a greater possibility of mycelium yep, and exactly. mushrooms associated with that. Or really, the mycelium associated with the mushrooms is the important part there, right. where moisture and nutrients are then spread through the soil and the soil is built yep. by, by the wood chips. That's what we're finding more and more 
Uh, we've been experimenting with heavy, heavy doses of wood chips here in the desert southwest. And it's amazing how fast the soil starts building at the interface between the dirt and the wood chips. Like mm-hmm. within a month or two, we're starting yes. getting, to get soil building there. So it's really amazing. Yes, so, it is. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, mm-hmm. and what you might have learned from it. Ooh, hmm. At the time I failed, well, of course, we always learn from our mistakes, so it's hard to really say what failure is. But I I do know what you mean, and I do have a story. Please. (laughs) Have a wonderful client. In fact, one of the things, if you ever get into permaculture design and installation, I think of uh, the Grateful Dead's Mickey Hart, uh, who said, if you want to be a a drummer – Get if you want to be a rock and roll drummer, get great parents. And so, if you want to be a, a permaculture designer, get get great clients. Uh-huh. And and I do ha- happen to have some. And and one of them had this project where it was uh, call up Nate Downey because there's a, a drainage problem in the backyard, uh-huh. and that drainage problem turned into four years of work because the lady decided to redo her entire landscape because of the beginnings really because of the drainage problem Mm -hmm. and she decided it was just time to do a whole revamp of the landscape well it was on a very steep and rocky uh slope and there wasn't much room but she really really wanted a cistern and she also wanted a labyrinth where she would Oh yeah. Stand and and walk through and there really just wasn't much room for um a large tank and the uh the labyrinth was was a factor as well. There was it's a very large house. Uh, I want to say in the 6 7000 well wow. actually 9000 the whole thing was about 9000 with the with the portals and and yeah. that in the garage. But so we couldn't even get all of the water from the roof to the one um, 14,000 gallon cistern. cistern that we right. ended up in- installing. Mm-hmm. And we looked at large, various materials. But because of the slope and the lack of space, we settled on concrete because concrete is the only one of the few uh, tank materials that can be both above ground and underground. Oh, right. Here it gets quite cold. We want our tanks at least partially buried. Mm-hmm. But nobody really makes a tank that's designed to be partially buried. There's the, the actually the, the thinner walled uh, plastic is the underground because the earth uh, helps to support the, right. the structure. And there's the thicker walled uh, above ground tanks, which people often do bury a few feet and they can get away with that. But it was also going to be you know, ugly to have a plastic tank like that as well. And then where would we put the labyrinth and that kind of thing? And so what we ended up with, a, uh, I think it was about a seven, eight foot high tank and 22 feet in diameter. Wow. That was um, poured concrete. And uh-huh. I made the mistake of subbing it out to someone who didn't quite uh, although I thought he did, didn't quite understand the the nature of what we were doing. Oops. And all he had to do was to um, use these things called rubber stop ties. And rubber stop ties hold the uh, form in place, but also 
don't allow any leakage. And he just used regular concrete ties as you would with any kind of retaining wall. And because of that, we had uh, literally hundreds of, of tiny leaks <laughs> oh my gosh. in this very expensive cistern. And what has happened since and what did happen is that we kind of had to excavate out the sides and uh, the sides. It was, part of it was uh, you, could see, you could see the leaks because it was partially buried. And part of it we had to excavate around to uh, get in there. And fortunately, and I didn't know it at the time, it took a little bit of research but not too much. And I found a product called Zypex. And it's been around for 50 years, and with the right amount of moisture and the right around the right temperature, you add this Zypex mix to these. You patch these holes, right? And crystals grow. Oh. Uh, it's a fractal kind of again the magic of permaculture patterning at yeah. work, and, and essentially these crystals grow enough to plug up those ties and it seems to have worked and so it was a failure at the time right one of those things where it was a kind of a bad christmas present that year <laughs> to discover that i had to spend uh, most of that time sort of uh, <laughs> in the mud and the yeah. gunk of of fixing a a a problem that i had caused yeah but i'm happy to say that it appears to be working quite well and you found a cool more, product from more it. failure. Yeah, you found a cool product from it. Yeah, and I recommend it to anyone who wants to do it. And we had Zypex as part of the pour itself. It was a powder that you add to the concrete, but we didn't have enough of it. Um, mm. And right around where those metal ties started, as soon as they started rusting out a little bit, right, um, water eked out of them, and and the Zypex uh, ended up doing the job of those rubber stop ties. But it was just a lot more labor to get there. Yeah, no kidding. So, what do you consider your biggest success? Oh boy. Well, I would say the book "Harvest the Rain." Yeah. But the and my column, which has gone on now for since 1999, pretty much monthly. Wow. Uh, uh, I don't do it every month, probably 10 months a year. That's another success. Mm, one of my favorite projects going on right oh, now. Oh, please. It's a success. It's a client I've had for 10 years, actually. And he has a certain sensibility that is um, just fabulous to work with and I, I have to give him a lot of credit for maybe this success but I learned quickly from him and what what he wanted to do was create a maybe a, a place of magic if we're going to use that word uh -huh. where the landscape is supposed to represent thousands of years of human evolution on his site. Oh, wow. So the hacienda, as it's called, has these ruins about it that we built up these walls to about four or five feet high, and then we went around pushing rocks off <laughs> as if the whole structure was at one point much taller and that the um, oh, interesting. The, the, yeah, the walls become this, this magical place. Uh -huh. And that you can walk around and kind of explore as if you've just come across or that the house was built 
across um, the centuries. Uh -huh. And so there's parts of it that are relatively new and parts of it are, that are relatively old. He has this whole story of um, how there were also some people who were influenced by Morocco. And so there's a, a part of the structure that is all Moroccan. And there's also the part of the structure that is very, very Native American. And we have oh. Waffle Garden there, which on the topic of water is, is worth bringing up. Please. Rather than having raised beds, and I have nothing against raised beds. Many of my clients have raised beds. I have some raised beds. And those are great. And they do in many ways uh, save water because you keep that water in a, in a raised bed and it doesn't uh -huh. go elsewhere. Right. But the Diné people, as they're sometimes called the Anasazi uh -huh. uh, of this part of the world, used to do these sunken gardens. And uh, we call mm. them waffle gardens because yeah. they look like great big waffles. And, and rather than have the beds raised, the pathways are raised. And when you raise the pathways, your seedlings then have a much better chance of surviving. The, any, any moisture, any rain that comes along will end up in the depression of the waffle and uh, any wind that comes through will not damage a young seedling mm -hmm. it'll hold back your mulch if yeah. you have a light mulch uh, and in in our strong winds that can really be a an immense uh help and so these, well, they become catchments also they are catchments and yeah. so off of all these little pathways nearby you're harvesting uh, anything that comes along and it's been fun for me to have a client who really gets it wanted to do something yeah. that was as authentic as possible and when it came time to keep the encroaching tomato plant uh, away from the squash and, and, and the chilies we used you know, natural materials rather than you know brightly colored you know metallic uh, uh -huh. items and so it's just the the commitment there was um, has been fun and <laughs> the, uh, the whole place is on a, a 20,000 gallon cistern there's a lot of uh, he calls me the prince of swales <laughs> because <laughs> we've done a lot of swaling nice. uh, along that the, the slope above his house yeah. to prevent it from being sort of washed away and also to create a, a native landscape on very little moisture yeah beautiful so what drives you well i guess my dad <laughs> back when i was i think six or seven uh -huh. i for whatever reason asked him you know what's the deal what what's the purpose what's what's the meaning of what's the purpose of life i think i said and, and he said well to make the world a better place than it was when you came and so i kind of believe mm, that yes. intuitively, as many of us do and that has done it ever since and there it started out with a pretty strong political concern and that does continue but the way i see permaculture really is changing the face of the planet for yeah. the better i mean if we could get your podcast out to the masses we would be in much better shape yeah. than we are now That's but i do think that 
I called the company initially Santa Fe Permaculture, and we also have Permadesign, which is now the design arm of Santa Fe Permaculture. But and people thought it was strange. What? A, why would you use a word that no one's ever heard of? But right. To me, that was a way of helping to educate people. And people, you know, they didn't come to me if they wanted a, to roll out a bunch of sod and have a lawn in the desert. They came to me because they knew there was something special or magical, perhaps, uh, with permaculture. Yeah. But the um, – so permaculture has a, a way of – um, you know, being so efficient and so productive that if yeah. we were all to kind of learn it and get going on it, we would have a much better chance as a species. And I, and I truly believe that. And I truly see that over the last 20 some odd years of doing this, people have come on board much more enthusiastically yep. than I ever thought possible. I have absolutely and so, seen that. Yeah. Especially after the the crash of two thousand eight, there, there was probably a big blip there, and unfortunately, these uh, blips of excitement happen uh, often after tragedies. I remember another one soon after nine eleven. Oh yes, people got very yeah. excited. Absolutely, and. You know, I look around now and, and I'm worried that there might be some kind of plateau. And so although it has become more successful, that is, you know, the culture movement than I ever thought possible, mm -hmm. it's also potential that we might be hitting a plateau right now. And I, I'm really appreciative of people like you who are really trying to get the word out because we've, we do have to take it to the next level. And, and some of this energy toward protecting the environment clearly is sort of slacking off. I, I see almost less recycling yeah, say, than exactly. I did 10 years ago. You, know, you see just people, you know, not getting it and, may, and maybe recycling. And I don't think recycling is some kind of, you know, answer, but it's indicative of people's concern for the planet. And I'm a little worried that we might be plateauing at this moment. Well, I think we're going to see some shift in that here soon. From yes. A, from a systems perspective. I hope so. Why do you say that? Um, well, we have a planet, I believe, that we have a planet that has ecosystems and uh, financial systems and political systems that have all exceeded their carrying capacity. And this is a conversation for another podcast, which yeah. we can do if you'd like, <laughs> but you know what happens when things exceed their carrying capacity. Yeah, so I just things you know. have to change. Yeah, yeah so that's right. Change. That's exactly. why I guess I'm sorry to say that sometimes it's these disasters or these realizations of disaster that sometimes yeah. make people take the whole thing more seriously yeah, exactly. and realize that these alternatives have to be explored. Right, and we will, and we will. So I'm all about education, and I have to know: is there one book that has been significant for you in your learning process? Well, I talked about Permaculture Designer's Manual yep. by Bill Mollison, and that was – it is the Bible of my work. And I used to go to it every project just uh -huh. <laughs> to see what was in there that I could translate to the real world. And there usually was something in that book that was translatable. Now, though, having almost – Memorize the, the 600 page tome. <laughs> I would that wanna, is a feat I would in itself. I want to give some kudos to 
Aldo Leopold's A Sand County Almanac. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a good old classic, that's for sure. It is. And I you know, I want to put it out there too because I came upon it right at the beginning of all of this for me 20 some odd years ago and you know what I didn't get into it it yeah. just seemed boring it, I didn't there's this long part in the beginning where he methodically goes through the history of a tree as there's this tree has been hit by lightning and the family goes out and they saw it down so they can get some firewood and 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 Leopold takes you backwards through the history of, of the tree's life as it goes through the tree rings. So the oh, right. Ring. And I just didn't groove on it. <laughs> but a couple of years then. ago, I happened to get reacquainted with the book through a gentleman named Kurt Miney, who wrote a definitive biography on Aldo Leopold, which I also would highly recommend people. It's uh, Leopold or Aldo Leopold, his life and, and legacy or his life and work, I believe. Right. And both that and a Sand County Almanac itself have really brought it back home to me and, and made me realize what what Leopold explains in, in the uh, one of the last essays in a Sand County Almanac. It's called The Land Ethic. Oh, yeah. And The Land Ethic starts you off in uh, Greek times, ancient Greek times, when Odysseus comes back from 10 years of the Trojan War and 10 years trying to get home and, and not always trying so hard to get home. But he does get home. And when he does, he hangs... I think six or eight of his uh, slave girls because he thinks they've been bad while he's been gone. Uh-huh. And he hangs them all on the same rope and nobody blinks an eye. That's, that's your property, Odysseus. You do what you want with your property. Uh-huh. Well, that was the ethic back then. Oh, yes. And he, Leopold makes uh... the point is that ethics evolve. And that what we are doing now to the earth, and he's talking about you know 1930s, 1940s, it right, came out exactly. 48 uh, or 49, a year after his death, unfortunately. So he was never able to promote his book. His son, Luna Leopold, got the book published, and uh, thank gosh for that. And it didn't really become popular until Rachel Carson's Silent Spring came out. In the People early 60s, yeah. Before these uh, important works and it is an important work because it talks about the evolution of our ethics yeah. and that just connected to what we were talking about earlier with what is society going to do if we hit a plateau or are we going to take it to the next level Leopold knows that there are many many more levels of our ethics and that just the way we no longer accept slavery we soon will no longer accept the difficulties associated with um, <laughs> How we property treat our ownership. land, and property, uh, proper, not only property ownership, but but taking for granted yeah. our quote unquote property, which isn't really property. It's it's land, and by land, Leopold means you know the the soil, the water, yeah. the my, mycelium, the bugs, the birds, the uh, animals, and the humans. And land means much more in the land ethic. And once we understand that land is much more than property, I do think we have a chance to get out of the mess that we've yeah. created for ourselves. Yeah. Beautifully said. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Final piece of advice would be 
start small. The permaculture oh, yes. principle of start small, start small yeah. but with the emphasis on the word start. <laughs> start starting small is important yes. because you don't want to bite off more than you can chew. You can get derailed by failures or too much work and not enough time to get it done. Mm -hmm. But another part of my book talks about adding a little bit of your sort of uh, palette of things that you do for the planet every year. And if you can sort of do 10 minutes a day every day for a year and just add a little 10 minutes of this or that, yeah. whether it be mulching your plants mm -hmm. or whether it be planting more of a garden. And then by that next year, you're used to that 10 minutes a day. Yeah. You add another 10 minutes on that second year and you're suddenly doing 20 minutes a day and you add 10 minutes a year as you come around to your starting point <laughs> and at the end of 30 years you'll be uh, working about four or five hours in the garden a day Beautiful. and that's about the same amount of time that uh, human beings spend on average or, or I should say uh, quote unquote uh, developed world human beings uh, spend in front of their screens yeah. a day. And so it's not a huge trade-off, and it's something that we should strongly consider. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Nate. It has been a treat chatting with you. Greg Peterson, thank you for all that you do. It's been a oh pleasure gosh. for me and an honor. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So how can our listeners get a hold of you and find your book? The best way is permadesign.com. Okay. And you can buy the book there, although I'd rather you buy it for less money at Amazon so I don't have to worry about wrapping it up. All but right. if you'd like one signed, certainly, permadesign.com. Oh, yes. yes, that's beautiful. All right, fantastic. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.